Mac Power Users, Episode 67, Web Security. Hello, everyone. It's David Sparks. Along with me is Katie Floyd. Hi, Katie. Hey, David. How are you? We also have a friend with us today, George Starcher, who is a security professional. George, you've been on the show before uh, to share the benefits of OpenDNS. That was actually a few years ago now, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I've been talking about it for quite a long time. But yeah, it's great to be back. Yeah, and we will talk about that a little bit more in the show, too. Yeah. Well, uh, George, you know, puts bread on his table, keeping networks secure. And we've been getting lots of questions from listeners about, you know, what exactly is a secure internet connection and where can I get into trouble when I'm at home, when I'm on the road, et cetera. And we thought, you know, we could talk about it, but it'd be even better to have someone like George in to really hit the nuts and bolts of this. So this episode is all about using the web securely, uh, which is a very important issue to people these days. So thanks a lot, George, for coming in and talking about this. Sure. Always fun. Yeah, not so George. Oh, sorry. You go ahead. Well, George, you're my go-to guy for whenever I've got a security issue, whenever I'm a little nervous about something. So, um, you know, I hit you on, on Twitter or I send you a direct message and you're always there for us. So I really appreciate you being there for the Mac Power Users listener. I think we're going to talk a little bit. We've, we've kind of got an outline about, you know, surfing the web security when you're at home, when you're traveling, some of the things you should do and shouldn't do, maybe setting up a VPN. Uh, but we also sent out some tweets and, and some Facebook comments asking for people to send us their questions. And I know we're going to try to work a lot of those, those common questions into the outlines, but, but maybe for any that we don't quite hit, we'll, we'll kind of wrap those up at the end if you don't mind. Sure. Sounds great. All right. Um, so, George, let's let, let's just start with what what does a normal person need to do? I'm I'm sitting, you know, just general best practices for everyday web surfing, whether I'm at home or whether I'm away. How can I surf the web securely? Well, first off, you know what most people associate with secure web surfing is when you have that padlock, you know, HTTPS with the S for secure or secure sockets layer, which is SSL. Which basically means it's encrypted between your machine and the server you are talking to. So what this really means in a practical sense from that standpoint is not being overheard, right? So anything you send, if you have that padlock between you and the other end is encrypted. It does not mean that whatever you're typing into the web page and they're saving like, you know, address, name, whatever on their end is actually encrypted in their server. So really what you're talking about is trust. It's, you know, who do you trust and how much do you trust them? And that varies between like your home internet connection, your computers and internet at work. If you're just on, you know, Wi-Fi or uh, like AT&T 3G or Verizon, how much do you trust that cell phone carrier and then public Wi-Fi you know, hotels, Starbucks, all these are going to be different levels of trust and comfort that you have that you're not being eavesdropped on in some way. You know, I'm sorry, go ahead. Just to stop right there. I had always heard about it as uh, data in transit or data in motion versus data at rest. That's correct. So, and data, yeah, data in motion is the HTTPS. That's when you're, you're dialing someone. And the way it was explained to me once was imagine a telephone call. If I call Katie up and I tell her my social security number, 
Uh, if she writes it down on a pad of paper and sticks it in a drawer at her house, that's the data at rest. But if somebody has tapped into that phone line while I'm dictating that number to her over the phone, that's the data in transit or data in motion. That's a perfect example. Okay. And so the HTTPS, what that really protects is the data in motion, what that phone line while the, while the stuff right. is going across. And, that, and the same applies to VPN or SSH, both of which we'll talk about a little later. That's where you got to decide, you know, how much you trust that business partner or vendor or friend or whoever you're talking with to what they're going to do with the data that you give them. Yeah. Um, so, so the takeaway from that is when you see the HTTPS in your, uh, um, URL bar and you see that you've got a secure connection, all that really tells you is that it's really difficult for someone to lift data as you're transferring it across. That doesn't tell you what condition that data is stored in that social security number is in that drawer at the other end. Absolutely. That's where like privacy policies and, and other things, data protection policies of the, that particular vendor, whether it's Google or, you know, PayPal or Amex or whoever, whatever their policies are posted on their site about how they handle your data. Okay. So then let's talk about data in motion just a little bit. And this HTTPS protocol, how safe is it really? I mean, is my phone line really safe at that point or is my data pipe? That's where you got to watch out. The way HTTPS is, you know, they have a certificate. Then I'm not going to get into all the cryptography involved, but supposedly, you know, this certificate's issued and then you encrypt the data, you know, with this, you know, certificate and there's some exchange and stuff goes on. So ideally, no one eavesdropping on the exchange can, you know, get the data once it's encrypted. So if you go get on public Wi-Fi and you see that warning about the certificate doesn't match, then you just want to stop right there because either it's expired or it's one of these self-issued certificates and your device doesn't know to trust that source uh, or it's potentially a man in the middle. You know, meaning some guy has faked the access point and he's getting you to connect to him. So if you actually accept, you'll be encrypted to him. And then he's listening to all the data coming out of that pipe. And then he's re-encrypting it and sending it on to where it goes. And he's in the middle recording it. So if you get those warnings, you know, basically stop right away. If you're, you know, especially if you're on public Wi-Fi, something like that. So like you said, that's data in transit. It's between you and whoever, you know, has that certificate. And ideally, if it's coming from the correct source, no one should be able to eavesdrop. But it is a bit of a flawed model. We've seen this in the news a bit in the past few months where certificate authorities, particularly when there were several overseas, um, and like in the Netherlands, I think it was, for example. And if you actually look in your web browser or like in our case on the Mac and keychain, you can find all these pre-trusted certificate authorities and you will find, you know, like a certificate authority from China and you'll find these things from the Netherlands and all this in there that your browser is accepting by default. And that's why when the certificate authorities got hacked, and someone was issuing certificates to themselves on with like Google's name, Twitter's name, you know, Microsoft's name and all that. They were legitimate certificates from a legitimate certificate authority, but they were issued by the bad guy himself who took control. So if he set up a man in the middle, like we talked about, then 
your browser would accept it. It would show it as green and you would never know that that's really a bad guy. So it's a bit of a flawed model and you're really kind of making your best guess. And there's just so many of these certificate authorities that you really have no idea how well they're protecting their own business in your web browser. So when that happened, Google and Apple and everyone had to issue patches for their browsers to take out those uh, now proven untrustworthy certificate authorities. It seems to me like there's really two different scenarios here. And one is public Wi-Fi, which has all sorts of pain and suffering involved or potential pain and suffering. And I want to address that later in the show in particular because of the risks. But Mm -hmm. if I'm home listening to this, what do I take away for using HTTPS at home? And, you know, how much can I trust that? And when I get a security or a certification pop up on my Mac, I know a lot of people just click those. Okay. Without thinking, is that something when you're in your own home Wi-Fi that you should be worried about when those are showing? If you see something about the certificate, not matching or being expired, that's when you want to hesitate. Well, I'll I'll give you an example. Um, The the local clerk of the court that I visit every day to view documents in the court docket, you know, through my day job has, you know, Google Chrome has given me a warning every day for the past three months about warning you may be on the wrong site because that some, you know, the certificate is invalid on this particular site. You know, now I've actually called up I know I'm not on the wrong site. I know that I'm at the right site. And, you know, to the best of my knowledge, I don't believe anybody's intercepting that. I'm not submitting any information, so I don't particularly care. Right. If you, there's if obviously you look, a disconnect there. Right. If, you've, if, if it's saying invalid and you know it's coming from the right source, chances are it's either they, they issued the, a certificate to themselves, what's called a self-issued certificate, usually happens when you install some software that you want to encrypt your session so no one can eavesdrop on you, but it's not necessarily going to be automatically trusted by the web browsers because it's just sort of generated on the fly when you install software rather than issued and signed by a legitimate authority, kind of like, uh, you know, um, a notary public signing off on a letter. You're, you're saying, I trust this notary public. They're signing it. And then someone else is going to trust based on that. Um, you don't have that usually with self-signed certificates. And that's where you can choose in most browsers to accept and memorize that certificate going forward. Um, but keep in mind, you know, that's what it is. And usually that just drives users nuts because it confuses them and they don't know why they're getting it. And then you've basically taught them to ignore the warning, you know, is, is the problem there. Oh yeah. If I just click this, it goes away. So yeah. yeah and everybody in my office knows you just click this and it goes yeah. away. And I'm, I'm, I'm terrified they're going to do it for every single website. Yeah. The plus side is you are encrypted to whoever's holding the other end of that connection, but at least no one else leaves drop on you. (laughs) But But that is is a problem, though, because as users, a lot of people don't want to deal with this. They just want to get on the Internet and, you know, buy shoes at Zappos or something. Right. And and again, if it's a, you know, generally, if you're talking a a well-reputable vendor, you know, an Amazon and and, you know, Zappos, whoever, they, they've got a vested interest in making sure their stuff stays up to date, current, protects it, and, you know, is watching for that sort of problem. And they don't let, you know, every now and then they'll see a headline about some idiot, you know, company let some vital certificate expire. But usually they'll get it fixed pretty quick and then things will go back to normal. But generally, the, the moral is if you get the pop up, hesitate and at least read it before you make a decision to trust it. The other thing, again, as you mentioned, it's data in transit. 
if you got a Trojan on your machine, it could theoretically, you know, be key logging everything you're typing before it goes across the uh, SS, you know, the SSL connection. And therefore, you know, they're getting all the unencrypted data. So one of the good things you should do is don't use the same web browser to check your mail and bank, particularly at the same time, right? So you might like always use Chrome for your banking and then use Safari for your casual browsing. That way, just in case the browser gets exploited and a plugin gets installed, maybe it's just in that browser and not in the other one, right? That's one way to do it. Um, and, you know, that at least help breaks it up. And another key thing about these sites, too, is even if they're perfectly legitimate, you're good with certificates and all that. If you're checking your mail, webmail at the same time that you're banking, you've got active logins to both. And if someone sends you spam mail that causes some exploit to automatically run in your web browser, they could use what's called cross-site scripting and do something to your bank account or do something to your mail account because you're on Twitter at the same time or, or take a control of your Twitter and cause the password to change. So the other good habit is log out of the website when you're done. Do not just leave the browser open. Don't go do other things at the same time as these vital things like banking and don't just close it because some sites like Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, they'll put that cookie there and they'll leave you effectively logged in forever. And that's why if you log into Facebook and you start searching, you know, CNET and all these other sites and they're saying, Hey, David, go ahead and comment. They're like, how do you know, how do they know I'm David? Oh, they use Facebook for authentication. I'm and I never logged out of Facebook. So there, it's making it easier for them to track and identify you as well. So log out of sites when you are done. That makes sense. And, you know, your banking site will do it automatically, but it's remarkable. It's supposed to, yeah. but it's better if you click it. <laughs> yeah, there's, it's remarkable the number of sites that don't automatically log you out. You taught me that years ago, George, and I've got the habit now. Whenever I leave a website, I look for the log out button. Yeah. It's, kind of, it's kind of funny. On some sites, they, they don't make it easy. They, they no, like, they don't. They they bury the logout button, or it's very small, just text without a button around it somewhere on the screen. You okay. know, George, and I think as as Mac users, we've we've all gotten a little bit lax, especially those of, of us who have been Mac users for a long time. And it's important to note this this isn't a Mac thing or or a PC thing. You know, th- these are now web standards, and these are things that are cross platform. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. If your job is out of date. On a Mac or a PC, you know, Java's cross-platform. You could have something run that does something to the browser and and uh, puts in a plugin appropriate to your operating system. It, it it's it's a good habit, you know. Log out of the stuff, and we'll talk about some blocking, you know, for cookies, things like that later. But log out. Don't run as admin when you're, especially when you're doing surfing. I mean, these are common things that. Like when I've done penetration testing as a company, the users are admin. I'm like, great. You just, you know, gave me control of your PC because inevitably there's something on your PC that's out of date and I can get you to run something or browse to something that'll run. And now I have full control of your PC and then I can use that to get to others. Right. So don't run as admin, you know, even on the Mac, make yourself a regular user because the Mac's really good about prompting you for your admin password if it needs it. And then have a second account that is admin for that purpose of when you need it. And George, you know, one way we put the cart before the horse here a little bit is 
when we talk about this data in transit, data in motion, what is the risk? If someone is able to tap that line, like for instance, I understand if you put your, your bank's login and password, if you type that in and send it over a Wi-Fi connection and it's not a secure connection, someone could lift that data out of the air. Sure, your your email, the biggest one, think about it, your email password, yeah, right? Exactly. So, let's so even, explain that. So you you go to log into your mail, and let's say the guy is somehow in the middle and he's able to eavesdrop, even though it looks like it has the padlock, right? Or you accepted it because you clicked too quick. And now you're encrypting to him, and you go to sign in to, say, Google Mail. Well, now he has your na- your username and your password. Now he can sign in as you. And what do most banking sites and all these other sites do for password resets? They mail them to you. So once they have control of your mail account, especially, you know, the habit now of keeping all your mail in your Google account, they can search. Oh, let's search for bank. Let's search for, you know, password and all that nice and quick and easy. And they can find all like maybe your previous password resets or at least who you're using. And then they know who to go tell. Send me in a reset. Send me a reset. Send me a reset. And then. They're in all your other accounts and changing your passwords and locking you out before you have a chance to even know what had happened. Yeah. You know, just this day, my um, my secretary got an email from her husband, you know, one of these traditional scams. Oh, hi, I, I need your help. I'm traveling overseas and my wallet and my password was taken. Um, uh, you know, can you wire me some funds? You know, it's one of the common scams that are out, you know, out there. So she calls up her husband at work and she's like, honey. Your email account has been hacked, and uh, we're seeing it all the time now. And and who knows where it came from? Whether it was whether it was truly a man in the middle attack, or some kind of cross site scripting error, or whether it was just the fact that he had used that same password across multiple sites, and whether through no no fault of his own, somebody else let his his username and password slip, and then they started trying it on Hotmail and, and Yahoo and Google and all those other places. Absolutely. That's why you want to use different passwords and, and, you know, for everything. And and I don't want to be paranoid, but the fact is this happens every day. Mm -hmm. People do get hacked and uh, we don't want our listeners to be among them. Yeah. I mean, look at, you know, the the headlines, Sony, Steam, you know, you buy Portal for your Mac, you were a Steam user. Maybe your credit card information got out because Steam got hacked, at least unlike Sony. They were forthright about telling everybody, <laughs> um, you know, and, and that's the thing. You cannot trust. You don't know until it happens to a particular vendor who you spent money with how they're going to behave until they have to do it. Yeah. Scary. Now, how, do, how does SSL fit with this? Well, again, SSL is only encrypting data to you know, you between you and that company, if they're not protecting the stuff on the other end, you're out of luck. If SSL is working properly and it's a proper certificate, then no one should be able to get the credentials and stuff that you're typing over that connection. Now, there are some issues that where if sites don't fully encrypt anything, but maybe the initial logon and you stay logged in, so you have a cookie. I, I, this is now most sites like Google stuff and, and Facebook have worked over time to correct it. But there was like a period of time where, yes, you could sign into Facebook with SSL. But once you were logged in, it went back to HTTP. And if you stayed logged in, well, when you go to connect again, it checks your cookie. Well, the cookie was transmitted in the clear, not over SSL. And then someone's eavesdropping. That's that fire sheep thing you probably heard about in the lot black is you'd eavesdrop and catch the cookies. 
and then use the cookie to then take over the person's account as if you had it and uh, type the password. So you want SSL on all the time for some of those sites, like your banking and stuff. If it doesn't leave SSL on all the time and it's a vital site for you, that's bad. Then I would definitely, de- and I guess that brings us kind of into the public traveling thing is, you know, three rules. Never do anything sensitive like banking over public Wi-Fi because, again, if they do something with HTTPS, either trick you to click OK or get a valid certificate and you never get a warning at all, then they've got your those banking credentials like you just talked about. All also, right. Wait, don't I'm going to interrupt use... you right there. Okay. I think this is a perfect point to transition into the discussion of public Wi-Fi. But before that, we got to pay the bills. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd like to talk about our first sponsor, which is Smile Software and their excellent product, Text Expander. Um, I know, George, you're a big Text Expander user. Yeah, matter of fact, um, I use it every week. I mean, I use it all the time for all sorts of stuff, but I use it specifically. Uh, an example that made it into the control, Take Control Text Expander book, which I do the call screening for Ken Ray for his yeah. live call-in show. Great I show, sort of, by the way. I, I do that for him every Wednesday night. And when you're taking calls, typing all that information about who they are, what topic they're calling about, whether they're on Skype or not, so he knows what kind of connection to expect uh, in terms of quality, uh, where they're calling from, and keeping that in a consistent format so that when I paste it over to him in iChat so he always knows the current you know people in, in line waiting, I use Text Expander. So what I did is I made a uh, fill-in snippet that's, that basically gives me a little pop-up, and I just type their name, type where they're calling from, and then I type, um, you know, what their topic is, and then I just hit yes or no for Skype, and then I click OK, and it just pastes that text in my little text edit document, and then I just highlight the whole thing, and I just paste all the current waiting callers into the iChat window for Ken every time, and so it always looks exactly the same to him, so he's got his eyes trained where he can keep track and read that pretty quickly. And that way it's always consistent and it's very quick and easy for me to fill in. Yeah. And if you're listening to this and you've never done this before, you might be thinking, wow, that's really hard. And George is a programmer oh, and a smart guy. No, it's not that it's at easy. all. Yeah. You, you put wild cards in, you can have no programming experience whatsoever and, and build these. I do it too for routine uh, emails that I send quite often where I have a fill in the blank type thing. And you could apply this to just about any kind of thing you do where you're sending a bit of text with just a small variation in every one. So, you know, so Katie, Katie, what David's saying is when listeners email, they think it's personalized. <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's always personalized when we're responding to listener email. It's always just well formatted. Well, Very I'll tell well you, formatted. if it's a listener, it is a, I write it, but if it's a vendor trying to get me to talk about something or whatever, they get the form. Yeah. You but that. you know, George, I, I use the fill in the blank snippets all the time. They're quickly becoming my favorite snippets. And that was a new feature, I think, of Text Expander 3 that just came out recently. I use these um, in work all the time, like for certificates of service that says I certify on blank date of blank month of blank year, but you mm-hmm. can have Text Expander fill that out. So I have it fill in, you know, the month and the year, but the date sometimes changes that I sent this to, you know, blank people and I type that in at blank address and I type that in and then all the other little uh, boilerplate language just just pops right in there. Yeah. And, you know, Text Expander can do all of this and more, whether it's just simple uh, email signatures or correcting your typos. And we we talked about PDF Pen having a book. Well, Text Expander has a book too. And, and George, you mentioned that your tip made the book. So I, I actually bought this ebook because I learned all new ways to take control of Text Expander. 
So once you get uh, using Text Expander, you can download the free trial on their website. They have a 90-day money-back guarantee if you don't absolutely love it, but I'm sure you will. And once you become a Text Expander uh, aficionado, you can become a Text Expander ninja by using their Take Control ebook for only $10. You can pick up the ebook from the Smile Software web store um, and get 93 pages of Text Expander tips, including George's. Yeah. Well, and actually, I just thought of a, uh, I, even when you're a really technical geek, it comes in handy because when I've done a lot of like security testing and things, there are a lot of scripted commands that I have to use over and over again. And I've actually made fill in snippets for some of those script, you know, where I'm doing like this line in terminal and this line in terminal, and this line in terminal. And what I do is I open up like text pad kick off the fill and snippet and just fill in like the IP address of the machine I'm beating on and all this stuff. And it just drops them all in there and then I'm just cut and paste it all into terminal and it rip. So you can find more information about text expander over at smilesoftware.com. Text expander is $34.95. It's available either from the smile website or in the Mac app store. And as we mentioned, you can go download a free trial, try it before you buy it or go ahead and buy it because they have a 90 day money back guarantee. And uh, I promise you won't be disappointed. And if you want the extra sprinkles on top of your chocolate, get the iOS version too, because then it shares all of that over Dropbox. And you've got all those snippets available to you on your iPad and your iPhone as well. And then yeah, the cherry on top of the sprinkles, you can get the Take Control ebook. All right. <laughs> well, thanks, Smile, for supporting the podcast. We really love those products. And I use Text Expander every day. It saved hours, if not days, of my life. What's some ice cream now? Yeah, I'm hungry. <laughs> But the show's speaking, not over, so you got to wait. Okay, All well, right. speaking of hungry, let's say that I head over to Starbucks for my triple macchiato, frappuccino, whatever. And you you so do not. Grande soy with whip white mocha, if anybody wants to bring me one at Macworld. I'll be at the Smile booth at 3 o'clock on Saturday. Grande like soy <laughs> with whip white mocha. <laughs> David, do you want to put in your order? I don't want any of that froofy stuff, and I don't care for their tea either. So uh, I like but, the caramel apple spice, especially this time of year. <laughs> All right. but. If you're there and it says free have Wi-Fi like next copies, to the cash register. What? Yes, Are you interrupting me? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> so if you're standing at, car, at Starbucks and you sit down and it says free Wi-Fi and you're like, great, I need to uh, transfer some money to my bank and um, access my Swiss account. And I need to, you know, send some very secure. I want to have the seven secret herbs and spices for the Kentucky Fried Chicken I'd like to send to somebody. For God's I want, sake, you, don't I want do you to it. let me know before you do it because I want to call George and have him come with me to that Starbucks. Yeah. Okay. But <laughs> so let's say you sit down at Starbucks. What What is the trouble you're asking for at that point? Well, like I said, if someone has done anything to either trick you into connecting to them first and then they're routing you back to the internet so you think you're on Starbucks, uh, then they could be middling you. As we talked about, like maybe you get the certificate warning, maybe you don't. Maybe you have they, they have one of those bogus certificates that were legitimately issued. And there is actually um, some security tools can act, have actually gone and gotten their own legitimate SSL certificate issued, so that the tool when they're like making fake LinkedIn things to get you know as part of penetrate legitimate testing for companies to see if users will click it. Uh, it, at least it doesn't give the pop-up warning, even though it doesn't really go to Facebook. If you look at the certificate, it has a different company name there. Oh, okay. So, and stop right there. So let's say you're, you sat down, you've opened the lid on your fancy MacBook air and you see some wireless connections and 
There's the inevitable free Wi-Fi connection. Oh, free public Wi-Fi. Yes. Free public yeah, wifi. That, that's almost always, always a joke. You know, not real, right? Yeah, it's that, a, that one, that free Wi-Fi is really expensive is what you're telling me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, don't do it. And then, But then there may be Starbucks 1 and Starbucks 2 and all these different connections. You, you've got no way to know which one's the real one. So yeah. again, you're making a de- you're making a decision in who you trust, and generally, three rules for public I follow. I absolutely, positively do not do anything like banking a high value over public Wi-Fi. Period. Right? It's too chancy to get caught and have your credentials stolen, and thus maybe even money. But what about what you just told us about email? Why isn't that just as dangerous there? Yeah, I mean, George, you it, just it, your- it, it, it can be, right? You're again, you're making a decision. And also, um, if you get that warning pop up, then you have a chance to cancel. And of course, if you're using your iPhone, you can always flip over to 3G and that's a little less risky, right? right. So you are making a decision. Well, isn't it a lot less risky? Uh, it's a lot less risky public Wi Fi, but there are now ways for, um, Bad guys, if they get the right hardware to spoof cellular connections and then main and mail you there. That's why when I go to some of the security hacker conferences I go to, the before I even get there, all you know, my Wi-Fi's off, my Bluetooth's off. Maybe I might leave 3G radio on. Usually I turn it off and only turn it on briefly when I need to use it, and then turn it right back off. Yeah, that scares listen. me. Well, that's because you're I in a get, room with a bunch of people who are trying. Yes, to I mean, you. that's an environment where you're likely to be had. <laughs> yeah, well, that scares me, and I want to get back to that. But let's just talk now about just the free Wi-Fi. Yeah. So so you don't know what you're connecting to, even if it says Starbucks. You really don't. You, you really don't know. You got and, no way to know. And the employee's going to go, yeah, we're running Wi-Fi, but you don't really know it's that one. Because the way Wi-Fi works, your radio will connect to, you know, the strongest signal. And if someone's blasting out a much stronger signal because they got a hidden Wi-Fi access point modified with a laptop in their backpack, pretending to be Starbucks, you're going to connect to that one, you know, first. So there's a guy in the corner who's looking kind of furtive. You know, you could be in trouble, right? He could be. Yeah. Or maybe he doesn't look furtive. Maybe he's having a good time. Yeah. (laughs) See, now, George, I'm confused. And I'm, I'm, I'm playing this up a little bit here for the benefit of you explaining it. But you just told us in in the first segment that we did that as long as I had the little security lock in the SSL thing that I was okay. No, I didn't say you were okay. I said okay. you were better off, right? But in public, you know, when you're at home, it's less likely, right? You're a trusted network. You're using encryption with your Wi-Fi. In public, you don't really know if that's really Starbucks. Is so it I could- likely to be? Yes. Is it, po- is it possibly not them? Absolutely, it's possibly not them. Airports? You know, maybe it's not the real Wi-Fi. You don't know. Yeah. And so, so going even, back home. Even though I've got the little padlock and it says, yes, I'm connected securely to Bank of America. If I'm surfing on the Starbucks network, I may not be really connected to the Starbucks network. I could be connected to this man in the middle. And therefore, I'm not really securely connected to Bank of America. Correct. That is possible. Yeah. And so. A and, scary place. And going back home, you know, you've got a, you've, you've got a firewall with your router. Right. And so generally, you're safe behind that. I mean, generally. Yeah, generally. I mean, again, it's always possible to, you know, someone might break your password and all that. But if you're using good encryption, you know, WPA2 with a nice long key, you're at your house, there's neighbors all around you, probably some of them are open. <laughs> you know, it's it's going to be, you know, they're going to go after the easy guy. You yeah. know, they don't want the guy who's going to fight back or make it hard. They're going to go for the easy one. But when I, we're talking about public Wi-Fi, 
there's basically three things I don't do in public is I don't do banking and things that involve money over the public Wi-Fi. Uh, I will talk about the mail in a second, right? Um, because there's something specific I do with Google that helps with the problem. Um, I don't use public kiosks. Computers you don't control, you've never seen them before. You know, the, the computer in the hotel business office, God's sakes, never type your credentials in there because you can almost be assured that kiosks are probably owned uh, and got key loggers on it. And then also don't download and even if you're using your own computer, don't download and install updates, you know, software updates to your machine for applications, things like that. Because depending on how well the developer handles downloading updates, they may or may not digitally sign them. And therefore you might actually get a bad update. that's actually, you know, malware infested and now your machine's taken over. So don't do that. Um, in public, if you get a prompt for software updates available, say no, do it when you get home. Well, you know, okay. my, my solution for all of this, and this is why I'm a little nervous now is I've always not used public Wi-Fi. I mean, I used to pay $60 a month to have a, a MiFi device just for that purpose, because I'm in courthouses and restaurants quite often, and I have a lot of work to do. So sure. I'll and then, really then, then you're, then you're using encrypted Wi-Fi to the MiFi or hotspot option on your iPhone, whatever. And you know, you've encrypted that. Yeah. And then, you know, you're connected to it and then it's using cellular, which is only really, yes, technically there are ways for people to, you know, the bad guys to do things to you there with the, the, with the cellular, but the odds of you actually running into that, not likely the odds of me running into it. Some of the conferences I go to very likely, but <laughs> Yeah, you know the average person. No, right? I I even gave up. I guess for the listeners' benefit, I gave up unlimited data on my iPhone plan to get that that ability to tether my phone because now it's just an extra twenty bucks a month instead of sixty. Sure. And but but if you're just you know downloading some you know doing some regular browsing and maybe downloading you know just you know watching YouTube clips or whatever, in that case, using the public Wi-Fi doesn't matter, right? Because it's it's not. You know, especially if you don't log in, not a real big deal. But let's talk about a minute. You know, Katie asked about mail and there is with Google. And I really wish Apple would implement this two factor authentication. Right. And, and we may have mentioned it before in shows three factors to authentication are the traditional things. Something, you know, which is, you know, like a password or a pin, something you have which could be like a card, like your ATM card, or, you know, maybe the little dongle work gives you and put you put on your keychain, right? Or an app you load on your phone. And then something you are, which would be like, you know, fingerprint or something like that, right? And Google supports and offers free two-factor authentication for use with Google accounts. That's both the regular na- accounts now, as well as Google Apps accounts. It doesn't matter. You can turn it on. And what that means is to log into, say, Gmail in your web browser, you go to log in. If you've turned this on, you get, you put your name, you put your password and you click OK. And then it'll come up and say, now enter the code from your second factor and say you have the Google Authenticator running on your iPhone or your iPad. And it's generating this little six digit number every 60 seconds. It changes. And you just enter that number into the extra box and then you're logged in. Now, 
that means that unless someone is actually controlling that machine at the very time you're logged in, they can't, you know, steal your account. What it, the way it works for apps, because, you know, with mail on your iPhone, there's no way for you to enter that second password, if you will. You know, it's just always changing, right? So what Google Apps lets you do is make these really long passwords that stay the same. And that if you use that with a application like mail or iChat, and you've set up Google Chat inside of iChat, something like that, you make one of these passwords for it. And you put that in as your password. And yes, theoretically, if someone were in the middle and got around the encryption, they could get that name and password. They could theoretically then set up your mail account on their iPhone and get into your mail. What they cannot do with that password is log into the web page. So that means if I then go to Google, you know, Gmail, and put my name and I put that password I stole off the, you know, out of the air at Starbucks. It won't accept it because it knows it's supposed to be used by an application, not the web page. And you can only change your password or turn off two factor things like that from the web page. So theoretically, they could get into your mail. They could delete all your mail, but they could not take control of your, you know, your YouTube channel or that away from you permanently. Well, that's nice, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the the one part of that that you went over pretty quickly is this two-factor authentication where you get a code on your phone. Right. And, and that's a great thing. I mean, uh, I use it. I think it's VeriSign has a similar service for PayPal. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. It's the, the, the little PIP VeriSign. And again, it's another app. You can download it to your phone. It's free. And then you take that and you associate that like with your PayPal account. And so every- now... Yeah, yeah, so go ahead. every time I go to buy something at PayPal, I put in my name, I put in my password, but then I also have to have my six-digit number that, that changes on my phone every 60 seconds. If I don't have my phone with me, I can't buy anything on PayPal. Correct. And it works great. I've been using it for years. Yes. And another form of two-factor, depending on the service, like log me in, is they will let you text message the code to your phone. Uh, Google will too. You don't have to use the apps, but the apps work best, right? And the Google apps really easy to set up. We don't necessarily need to go through step by step. There's plenty of videos out there on how to do it. But in essence, when you're setting it up, they put a barcode on the screen and you just tap the thing to scan the barcode and hold your iPhone up and or your Android, whatever your blows your skirt up there and aim the camera at it and it will scan the, the, the code right off the screen. So you don't have to type it in and make it really easy. But in essence, if you have two-factor auth available, use it. Because that way, if someone gets your password because they looked over your shoulder, whether they guessed it, whether they hacked a company and you used it in more than one place, they still won't be able to take full control of your account because they don't have that second factor, right? Now, one gotcha to watch for, especially with the iPhone apps, is what if I like I went from an iPhone 4 to an iPhone 4S? Sorry, Katie, I know I left you behind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everybody um, with the 4S. But those applications do not restore across devices. They can restore to the same device and generally stay in sync, and you don't have to like redo it. But when I move to the 4S and I pull up the app, 
it didn't know that it was in sync with my Google account. So I literally had to log into my Google account, turn off two-factor, and then turn it back on and use my new phone to set it back up. So if you don't back up your phone or it gets hit with a hammer or you lose it, you may have to use, you know, usually they give you an alternate way to log in, like, you know, answer these three or four questions, or we're going to text it to this alternate phone number you gave us. Or like in Google's case, they actually let you print out a list of passwords that can only work one time each. And you go say, put that in your safe. And that way, if your phone got, you know, run over by a car, you just pull that out of safe, log in, turn everything off, set up your new phone and you're back in business. Yeah. And VeriSign gave me the same experience. I had to get through all my security questions when I upgraded phones to identify a new phone as my VeriSign two-factor authentication device. Yeah. I think this really leads to our second sponsor, though, about passwords. Uh, and that's uh, our sponsor is 1Password. And you're talking about using a secure password, and I can't think of a better way to do it than using 1Password. Uh, it's, in my opinion, probably the single most important app on your computer uh, in terms of security, at least, uh, it solves so many of these problems like Katie's uh, secretary's husband, who was using the same password across multiple devices. Uh, this app takes care of that for you. I mean, I remember scratching my head trying to come up with passwords. It used to be so difficult. And then inevitably, you would just start using the same one over and over again. And that's not the case when you run this app. It creates very secure passwords for you that you can drop right in. And it remembers these passwords for each of your different sites and logins. And what's neat about there? Uh, go ahead, George. I actually don't know any of my passwords except the one I used to unlock one password. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's probably safer that way because you know if you get captured by bad guys and they try to torture you for your yeah, password and stopped at the border, whatever you know, you hassled. Yeah, um, but their secure password, their random password generator. Um, works really well because what it does is you, it's great. You, you run a little slider and you put a little slider and you say, okay, how, how many, um, characters do I want this password to be? Do I want to allow digits to, or, uh, characters to repeat? Do I want it to have numbers and letters? Do I want it to have dashes? Do I want it to have special symbols? So you can turn these little checkboxes on or off because you know, some, some password, depending on the, on the site that you're on, some will require you to use special symbols. Some will not let you use special symbols. Some will require you to have, you know, three out of these four characteristics. Some will say you, you can't have anything but just straight letters in your password. So you can customize your, your generated passwords based on the needs of the site. And then you can even go so far as to tell it, well, I want you to make this a password that is at least pronounceable so that if I have to type it in myself and I can't let one password do it or I can't copy paste it, you know, I'm probably more likely to be able to type it if I can pronounce it. So I do like that. Or I want you to break it up every so many characters with a number or hyphen um, just kind of for ease of reentering. Yeah, and, and reentering is important because you can do it with a, a paste instead of typing it. So if you've got the key logger George was talking about earlier installed on your computer, the bad guys aren't going to get your password because one password is going to autofill that for you. Um, yeah, it, it also, it also checks the site, yeah. you know, and, and if it, if it doesn't line up, you know, if the names doesn't spelled exactly right or whatever, then it won't offer to let you fill in the password. <laughs> so, so if you're in Starbucks and the guy, um, uh, from Pollo Loco is trying to steal the Colonel's extra spicy chicken recipe. And he, he uh, 
builds a site that looks like the site you're expecting, but it isn't really. It's less likely to fool it. Yeah. Yeah. One, if one password, and I think, you know, you said it earlier, you have alarm bells when you get a certificate warning. Sure. I have alarm bells when I go to use one password and it doesn't want to fill the password for me. Yeah. You know, if, if I'm at a site that I know I have one password set up for and it's not offering to automatically insert that password for me, then that's a red flag and I need to make sure that I'm actually where I think I am. Yeah. And, and if you, you know, heaven forbid, I, you know, we're all Mac lovers here. You know, I, I, I do have to use Windows at work and I know you guys do too to a degree as well. Yeah. They make it Windows version, which has been a godsend. Yeah. So you can get it for 50 bucks in the Mac App Store, which really gives you in essence a family license because you can use it for everyone on your account. Uh, and you get the benefits of the Mac App Store with that. Uh, you can buy it direct from the website. I believe it's $40 right. on the website directly. And then uh, for your iOS devices, you can get for $15, you can get a version that works both on the iPad and the iPhone, or you can get one just for either for $10. Yeah. And and, and you mentioned family, and I know this is going to be a little bit of a depressing comment, but the other thing 1Password lets you do is, you know, you can actually, you know, export and save that stuff out or print it out and go lock it in your safe deposit box because... I actually do occasionally get email from people like my son passed away and I don't know how to get into X account and it's in his, you know, Mac keychain and I can't break into that. If you manage your passwords and use something like that, it makes it easy for you to put a password list and secure it where family members could get into it. God forbid if something were to happen to you. You know, that's a really good point because I've told my wife my one password password and I'm sure she's forgot it. And if I get hit by a bus, she's totally screwed. Yeah, you just you write it down, go lock it in your safe deposit box, and at least she can know that one to get into one password and then able to get everything else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what I've done is I've I've put together a little letter and put it in my safe and said, this is the master password to my computer. This is the master password to one password. And this is David Sparks' phone number. <laughs> yeah. And that way you don't have He'll to. He'll get you in from there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I do the same thing for Victor, right? If anything happens <laughs> to Victor, I help Mary get into everything. But um then that way, too, is you're adding sites over time and that password vault and one password keeps growing because all you had to do is, you know, put that letter and just put the master password. You don't have to keep replacing it. Right. You know, just letter write the letter once. Well, I, I feel this very warm relationship towards one password and everyone behind it. I remember meeting those guys when they had a little tiny. It wasn't even it, a booth. it was like a, a slice of pizza. It was yeah. like that size, a slice of a booth at Macworld. Mac yeah. Yeah. That was years ago. But they had a great idea. And they've done nothing in the years since but just make it better and keep working on it. And even uh, security professionals like George use it. I, I just can't imagine not having this in my life in terms of web security and just general computing security. So if you haven't checked it out yet, please go do so. Uh, do yourself a favor. And uh, thank 1Password for sponsoring the podcast. Yeah. Well, that so, moves us. I, I'll go ahead and throw this one out there. That really, you know, we talked about the public thing. And, you know, SSL generally is going to be okay, but there are ways to fool you. Setting up a VPN or SSH back to a trusted network is your better solution long term. Okay. Well, George, you know, one of the, one of the things is how, how do I do this? Because I know the, the tech guys who work for my company have set up a, a VPN that I can VPN, but just into my company's server. If I'm just, you know, Katie Floyd on the road going to Macworld, how do, I set up a VPN, you know, so if I'm sitting in Starbucks that I can set up a VPN, I mean, I've got a lot of stuff 
that I, I think I can use, you know, like I've got this Mac mini here and, you know, I've got a bunch of web storage space and I've, I've got a lot of pieces that I think I can cobble together and do something with. I just don't know how to do it. Is it possible? Is it possible for me to roll my own? And even sure. before you explain how to do it, explain what it is, because I'm sure there's some people that yes. are confused. By right. This. Well, you in relation to Macs, you've probably heard. Uh, well, first off, one thing you've probably heard remote login or SSH, right? That is generally, it's an encrypted login session to your Mac. Usually you get a terminal, right? There is a way to use SSH to send traffic through it like a VPN, like for web browsing. And, I, and for the longest time, I did that. And I still do it to some degree where I have SSH on my Mac at home set up. And I connect into my Mac at home and then I tell my web browser to use uh, that connection is a web browser proxy. And what happens is that makes all my web browsing go through that SSH and look like it's coming out of my house. So that way, if I am at the Starbucks, I'm encrypted, as you mentioned earlier, in transit over the over the no man's land of the public Wi-Fi and then over the Internet back to my house because I'm trusting, you know, Comcast and all that with, you know, my normal browsing habits. So. That's one way to do it. The problem with SSH is a couple problems. One, it only is going to work on your Mac. You can't tunnel all your app traffic and all that stuff on your iPhone or iPad through SSH, you know, like an SSH app running on your iPad. So there's no real way to, to, to make everything go that way like you can with a Mac. And I did do a whole video tutorial series, so we're not going to get into it. And that's over, you know, typical Mac user. If you go there and just search for SSH, you can find the video series. Or if you go to my blog, georgestarcher.com, and search for SSH, you can find a post where I've put all the links. And, and it's a I little put old, in the show but it works well. Yeah, it, it's older, but it still works fine if you want to do that. But it also, again, does not help your iDevices. And even when you're running it on the Mac, unless you do a lot of really work, it generally, or go get one of these, you know, there are a few apps that kind of make it a little easier. It doesn't necessarily send everything your Mac is doing through the SSH tunnel. So it's like poor man's VPN. What you're asking about is VPN, a full up VPN. You know, I want to go in my iPhone and I go into general and I go into the network settings and there's a section for VPN and I've got three choices. I've got L2TP, I've got PPTP, and I've got IPsec, Cisco. Basically, the first one and the third one, the L2TP, is also IPsec as well as Cisco. And what IPsec is, that's a type of VPN. Generally, your other type is SSL or HTTPS, kind of like what we were talking about. HTTPS uses SSL. Hey, George, I want to stop you just for a minute. And I want you to envision someone driving down the 405 bank. Yeah, head this is going to be a little computer. Yeah. yeah. All right. So let's just kind of just let's talk about how can, uh, you know, typical or Mac power user put this to use. All right. There, if you really are a tech head, you can say spin up a VPN server like up in Amazon or on a spare machine at your house. You could use something like um, there's an open source firewall that supports it called PFSense. And that's at pfsense.org. It will support iDevices and Macs. Okay. But it is rather technical in setting that up. And again, it uses this IPsec VPN. We really won't get into it, but that breaks a lot in things like hotels, 
I've had issues with it over Verizon with uh, iPads and iPhones trying to connect into one I set up at work where it works over MiFi. So it, it kind of works, kind of doesn't. But a much easier way for a Mac user is if you have Lion Server. If you, you know, say you have Lion on your Mac and then you go into the Mac App Store and you buy Lion Server, it'll download and you can install it on that Mac. That could be something like a Spire Mac Mini or now with VMware, you can load Lion and Lion Server inside VMware and spin that up. And it is fairly easy. You know, it gives you the nice little server screen and it gives you an on off button. And as soon as you hit on, especially if you're using a Apple Airport Extreme router, it'll say, tell me the password of the router. And it will actually log into the router and make all the changes necessary to let the VPN reach your Lion server through your router. So that really sounds like the best solution if you want to do it. If you really want to spin your own and you don't and you're not a real tech IT geek, this is a good way to do it. And go ahead. Yeah. So I was going to say, so George, I've got this spare Mac mini that I use Mm -hmm. for random things around the house. It's got my iTunes library on it. It's connected to my TV. So I occasionally use it for streaming. But if I'm out and about, you know, let's say I'm at Macworld or I'm at Starbucks, it's got Lion on it. So for Mm -hmm. 50 bucks, I can go to the Mac app store, download Lion server, which I could use on all of my machines, but specifically to put on the spare Mac mini server, I can turn on a VPN through that Mac mini server. Yes. And then basically when you turn it on and it makes the changes, let's say, let's assume you're using, you know, an airport extreme router and it makes the changes there for you. So you don't have to. Yes. It also gives you a button to save the config to a file. And it gives you a little profile file that you drag and drop into an email and mail it to yourself. And then you could just tap it on your iPhone or your iPad and it'll say, Hey, I want to, you want to import these settings. Uh, do you trust this? And you'll just say yes, because you just sent it to yourself. So you know, it came from you <laughs> and it'll want to then ask your username and your password that you set up on the Mac. So if you added a user and, you know, or, you know, Katie on the road and whatever password with it, then that's the name and password you will put in as it walks you through it. And then it'll also make it the default VPN if you have more than one. And then all you got to do is tap on. And then as soon as you tap on, it'll try and connect back to that Mac mini in your house, you know, and reach through your router. And ideally it will come up and work. And the net result, to put it in basic terms, is you're carrying that router firewall we talked about earlier around with you. Yeah. So if you're, you know, no matter how you're connected, whether it's public Wi-Fi over the 3G network, whatever, all the traffic from your iPhone or your iPad then goes all the way back to your house. Or even from another Mac, even if I'm sitting with or my Mac. Or from another okay. Mac. Yeah. Sure. And it lo- it goes all the way to your house and then back out to the Internet. So it looks like you're browsing from home. And I've not bothered with any of that. I just yep. uh, I just pay the twenty bucks to be able to tether through three G. Yeah, yeah, that's one way to do it. Now there but are. Why do that, David? When I can spend fifty bucks in an entire weekend bugging George to set this up? <laughs> it's actually not that hard, <laughs> but it can have some problems. IPsec VPNs can break a lot of ways. A lot of hotels will break it, and it won't connect, or you'll get connected. 
but nothing will happen. You can't browse anywhere. That's the usual symptom of someone messing with IPsec. And that's what I said. I've seen it with Verizon native on the iPad. <laughs> but then if I connected the iPad to a MiFi, it would work. And I didn't change anything in the settings. So I know it's Verizon blocking some of that traffic. At home, I've done this thing where I've built, you know, a line server inside of VMware. And if I'm in my home network, I can make it connect and it works fine. The moment I turn off, you know, my, my Wi-Fi and try and connect from, say, over AT&T, it fails. And it's not AT&T because I could turn around and connect to the VPN I set up at work. And it works the same way. And it connects. So it's something Comcast is doing to my home connection is breaking it. And they're infamous for that. And then what about these services where you can buy essentially, I guess it's not really VPN, but these remote access services, there's several of them on the iPad. Right. There's, there's probably two, uh, one you've probably heard about before. It's been around a while called hotspot shield. Right. Uh, you can find that app in the app store and basically sign up. And I think Steve Gibson, you know, Leo Laporte's friend has talked about that. And if you go to the Hotspot Shield, you set an account, you pay them a little bit of money. And in essence, they're doing the same thing we just talked about, like rolling up Lion and setting up a server or using PFSense. But they've just done it all for you. And they just send you that little config file that you would save out if you did it yourself at Lion. And they send it to you and you just tap on it in your phone and boom, you're up and running. Right. And you're connecting to them. Now, this is where that trust comes into play. You are trusting them because now you're sending everything you're doing out through them and they could be listening on the other end if they wanted to. So the question is, do I trust the people behind Hotspot Shield or one of these other similar services or do I trust, in my case, Cox Cable, who is my home ISP? Right. Who do you trust more? Right. And there's there's one other option that's actually fairly new. Some of my security friends have tweeted about them. I myself have not used them, uh, but they look fairly legit. There's some guys up in, um, I believe it's Seattle that's running this one. It's called Get Cloak, uh, getcloak.com. And they're pretty transparent with how their stuff works and, and all this. So, you know, similar to Hotspot Shield, you, you make an account. They actually, I think Get Cloak actually gives you like up to two gigabytes free for month for traffic through them. You know, so they have like a free level account and then pay if you want more sort of deal. But then again, you're still trusting them with your traffic if you're, if you're connected to them. But that is an option if you don't want to rule your own, but want to have the same easy kind of setup. But again, it's still that IPsec thing and it could potentially break. So if it works on your cellular, but it doesn't work on the hotel Wi-Fi, it's probably the hotel. Right? Okay. You know, we're running long and I don't, I, I know we have a lot more stuff to cover too, but just real quick, what about log me in and I teleport and those kinds of services? How do they fit in this? Right. They're, they're usually using SSL type encryption to, you know, encrypt between you and, you know, them and them from them to your Mac, you know, at home. And then yeah. you're remote controlling the screen of your Mac, not necessarily sending your traffic from your Facebook app on your iPhone through it. Gotcha. So it's a different beast at that point. Yeah, it's 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 more along the lines of SSH, right? You're connecting to another machine and everything you do just to that machine, in this case, controlling the screen with log me in is protected. But none of your other apps are like your mail that's automatically checking in the background every you know 10 minutes. That's so, not going to be protected. 
So, so George, I got to go back to just my my idea of just using three G because That's it seems like best. every time I try and deal with this VPN stuff, I end up spending a lot more time on it than I than I feel like I uh, is worth. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that that is true. But there are also times where you know three G signal may not work great, and Wi Fi may be your only option. It just, yeah. it <laughs> I hate to say it, but it just depends on what you need and what what you're willing to trust and what you're willing to do to get there. Yeah. One but thing it sounds through, it sounds to me though, listening to you that this is possible for you know a small user or a small business. They sure make this happen. It's from from a Mac perspective, either using one of those services or. And they support Macs too, you know, not just the devices, but they make it easy for the device by issuing you that little config file is obviously rolling your own with like Lion server is a fairly painless way to do it. It still takes a, you know, a few minutes to kind of get it installed and realize where you need to click, but you literally, it generates a nice strong password for you. You don't even have to type one in and it just spits the file out and you mail it to yourself. It's, it's actually fairly easy. Okay, well, we've got a bunch of questions, or at least several, I think, very good questions that we pulled out of the list that we're yeah, going to have you answer. But before we do that, let's talk about our last sponsor, Chrometa. Uh, I was really happy when Chrometa asked to sponsor the podcast because I think they scratch an itch that anybody who bills by the hour can really use, whether you're an artist or a professional. Um, it's difficult to keep track of your time as you're dodging bullets all day. And Chrometa takes the work out of it for you because it's an app that installs on your Mac and it watches what you're doing. So if you're in a Word document for 38 minutes about, you know, the Colonel Sanders chicken, that's the theme today, I guess. I guess so. Uh, it's going to give you a report at the end of the day, tell you how many minutes you spent in that document. And then if you've got another document you worked on, it's going to give you a report for that, too. So it allows you to keep track of time without having to sit there with a pencil and paper and religiously write something down every time you switch between apps. It's really a great solution because it takes the user requirement of filling out all the details out of it. You know, you just install the app and get to work. And not only does it allow you to spend more time working and less time trying to track your time, it does track your time extremely accurately. So you're going to capture time that you never would have recorded otherwise. I just think it's a great app. What do you think about it? Have you, have you been using it much, Katie? David, it has saved my bacon this month. I've got to tell you, November was a particularly, actually it saved me last month. November was a particularly bad month for me. I was really bad. I just got so, you know how you can be so overwhelmed doing work and so overwhelmed with life sometimes that you actually forget to bill and you actually forget to write down what you're supposed to be doing with your work because you're too busy actually doing what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah, you get paralyzed at some point. Yeah, it's just there's so much and I had a lot of things going on in in my professional life and my personal life and I I realized at some point it was at the end of the month and my time was due and I looked back and I realized that I had not entered any time for weeks. I mean, and it was just this paralyzing fear of I have to go back for the last 3 weeks and recreate all of my billing records for the last 3 weeks. And I'm scouring through my email and scouring through my calendar. And I don't know what I was thinking. But all of a sudden, I saw the little Chrometa app in the bottom of my taskbar uh, on my computer at work. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I'm covered. And it was so simple. All I had to do is log into the Chrometa website. And it goes through and it gives you very accurate reports that you can you can view. And I just went through with my dictaphone. I dictate my time day by day. And I was able to very quickly within, you know, less than an hour, 
go through Cometa and dictate all of my time to my uh, assistant and the people in our office who keeps the time for us that I had done for the last three weeks, because even though I hadn't done what I was supposed to do by keeping track of the time, Chrometa had done it for me. It yeah, was and, just a lifesaver. And it's not that expensive. It starts at $19 a month, goes up to 50 depending on what you're looking for. You can export your data to QuickBooks and Time Slips and some of the other common billing uh, programs. It retains data for you. You can install it on multiple devices. If you've got a Mac and a PC and you're billing on both, you can work with both of those devices. I just think it's a, a fresh look at how to track time and I'm excited to have them as a sponsor of the show. I think that it's a good fit for our audience. So check it out. It's uh, chrometa.com, C-H-R-O-M-E-T-A. If you decide to use them, let them know you heard about them here on the Mac Power Users. And thanks again to Chrometa for sponsoring the podcast. Uh, so, George, if we've got some time, I think we've got a little bit of time left. I just want to go through some listener questions that that we've got that maybe we haven't covered. I know you've tried to fold quite a few of them. Um, into into the regular show. And I'm not going to attribute these to any particular listener because a lot of listeners sent us the same questions. So these are just kind of uh, the compilation of the general questions we got. So you can figure out how much time you want to devote to these, or if you've got quick answers, you can do that too. Sure, let's um, do it. But a lot of listeners asked us the same common question about antivirus. And with all of the stuff that's going on in the news and everything that's happening in the world of Trojans, is it time to install an antivirus? And a lot of people specifically wanted to know, I'm not so worried about it because I'm a power user, but what about the other people in my household or what about the other Macs that I manage for others, for my parents, for my kids, for my siblings? You know, if I'm, you know, do I need to be installing antivirus for them or is it going to do me more harm than good? I do run antivirus, but obviously I'm a little bit higher risk user because of some of the stuff that I handle and some of the stuff that I look at. However, so if you work in a nuclear facility, you're going to wear one of those suits, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Right. Yeah. So if you really, really don't want to run it, I think you can still get away with it on a Mac at this time. The key things will be don't run as administrator and keep all your software patched and up to date. Those those two things alone will stop a lot of stuff from going wrong. And that's true whether it's Windows or whatever. In the corporate environment, you know, if I'm, you know, if I were doing a, a, a what we call a penetration test where I'm trying to break in as a bad guy to someone's company, usually I get into the machines and get control because the user's administrator and all their stuff's not patched. And they've done those two things, then I probably wouldn't have gotten it. But in some cases, if it's, you know, you hear the term zero day, some flaw that's new. And it's being used by the bad guys, but the patch isn't out yet. Then that is where antivirus itself probably won't help you because it usually means there has the, the antivirus has to vendors have to learn about it and make a signature for it. But generally that happens faster than the patches come out. <laughs> so it doesn't hurt to consider running antivirus, especially depending on what, how you're using your machine or. Like you say, if it's family members and you don't want the hassle of if something went wrong, having to clean up the mess, then, yeah, you could consider it. But the key things, don't run as admin and keep things patched, will do the most for you immediately as a Mac user. And I think another point is if you do run antivirus software, don't think that you're bulletproof. Because like you said, a lot of times the new viruses come out before there's definitions and you're just as vulnerable as the guy who doesn't have 
So sure, and and in some cases, it can actually cause some troubleshooting issues. You know, where I'm trying to SSH to my Mac and I can't get connected, and I forget that I got the Mac firewall on, and maybe I'm using a, a certain antivirus and it has its own firewall, and I got to turn it off too, and I didn't account for both. You know, I've had that happen, and so I do run it, but you know, that's a personal choice. And like I said, you could get away without it, but I do think sometime in the next year or two probably should consider running, you know, running one. And which ones do you run? Right. So that's the next question is what I would recommend. And do I run into problems with it, you know, hogging up system resources? I've been using Virus Barrier X. I got it as like a Mac bundle part a few years back, and then I just kept paying it to keep it up to date because being a security professional would be kind of embarrassed if my own Mac got hosed. Um, I have also used the free Clam XAV on some machines occasionally, you know, where I do a lot less stuff just to have something there. Like maybe there's a requirement for me to have AV, even though I'm a Mac user before the business will let me connect uh, or a customer might let me connect to their network, whatever. Then I at least have that on there and it works OK. And again, those are signature based products. Virus Barrier X is, you know, you basically you're paying like 50 bucks a year to keep it current. All right. Another common question, kind of along the same vein, is how do I protect myself and, again, those less heavy tech users uh, from the phishing attacks? Because that's becoming more and more common as well. You just click a link on a Google search and boom, you're somewhere you didn't expect to be. And all of a sudden you're typing it in your administrative password and then things go horribly wrong. Well, to be clear, clicking it in a Google search result is corrupted Google uh, you know, hijack Google search results. Phishing is where they've sent an email that looks like it came from Bank of America, but really didn't, or LinkedIn or Facebook. Okay, yes, that too. Yes. Right. The key thing is, is even if it's coming from a company you use, never ever click the links in the mail. Just don't. Because phish is so easy to make a phishing email that looks legitimate, even to people like me, <laughs> where I, li- you know, I'm not going to take 20 minutes to, 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 parse out the mail headers of every mail I get. So I simply don't click on the links. If I got something from my bank and it looks, I want to know more about it, I will open up my web browser and type in my bank's URL or take it out of my favorites. I will not click on the mail and, you know, the links in the mail itself won't do it. That's the easiest way to help avoid a lot of that. The other thing that I do is I use OpenDNS to do web filtering on my home and they have really good protection and they're behind one of the big think tank collection things called fish tank that helps, you know, identify and protect from phishing email. And specifically you talked about corrupted Google search results. I needed to call my yard guy, forgotten the number, Googled their site, clicked on the link and open DNS caught that it was trying to redirect me to a site in Russia. <laughs> so it's your yard man's in Russia. Yeah, <laughs> he is now, right? Um, or at least I, I told him his website is. Um, so then that protected me. Of course, Google Chrome did a similar check because I checked it out in there. But his website had gotten some, you know, infected with some code. Someone had somehow compromised it, like, you know, WordPress blog or whatever. And having open DNS in place and turning on the phishing protection, you know, helped reduce what's likely to get through all the way to my PC and have work even when I didn't mean to click on it. Yeah. And we, we passed over this quickly because we covered it in Mac power user 17, but open DNS for your home security, I think is almost mandatory. Yeah, it, it's a piece it. to the puzzle. It's not everything just like keeping patched as a piece, yeah. but it's free. 
And if you got kids, you can block, you know, the porn. Sure, it won't stop a determined teenager because maybe they'll VPN over to their friend's house. But, um, you know, at some least, point you just have to applaud their effort. Yeah, exactly. You know, hey, and encourage them and send yeah. them to a technical school. Exactly. But at least go to MIT, keep, kid. It'll, it might keep your young child from accidentally seeing stuff that you don't want them to see. Right. Yes. And it, it might reduce, like you say, the malware that might get on that, you know, grandma or grandpa's or like in my case, I set it up for my in-laws. I set it up at my mom's house just to make it less often that I get called about their computer not working. <laughs> you talked a little bit about firewalls. So another common question we got is just in general, what do people need to know about firewalls? Is there a router enough? Do they need to turn their Mac security software firewall on? You know, I don't remember if it's turned on by default in Lion or not. I know in previous versions it wasn't um, because a, a lot of times those, those software firewalls can, can have issues. And, you know, sometimes we tell people to turn it off as a troubleshooting step. So, does the software firewall do more harm than good? Are they okay if they're behind the hardware firewall? And then that kind of poses a problem if they go out into the world and they're not behind their hardware firewall. Right. So the the practical day-to-day answer is if you've got, you know, a router, you know, like an Apple Airport Extreme, a Link, Sys, D-Link, whatever, then that generally will keep anyone from coming from the outside into your network unsolicited, Right. And that is generally good enough. Um, it will not protect your computers if you clicked on something you shouldn't and it installed it. And then suddenly they got remote control of your computer. <laughs> then that's a different story because generally those types of things like your router don't keep stuff from going out. They only keep it from coming in. Right. And that's where something like a software firewall, like a little snitch or virus barrier X or something where it has a built in, you know, feature for that will help catch stuff trying to leave your Mac, uh, not just coming in. Of course, there's the built in firewall to the Mac that will help, you know, with stuff coming in. So if you go to public Wi-Fi, um, you know, when you're out and about, I would definitely make sure that your software firewall is on. The other thing I would make sure I do is turn off sharing. So if you've got your iTunes sharing, you know, share my library with everybody on the network. One time I was coming back from a security conference in San Francisco and I just, I was bored on the flight, long flight back. So I just turned on my iPhone and I looked at all the people sharing their iTunes libraries off their Mac laptops and it had their name. And it turned out it was like the guy in front of me. And I'm looking at the magazines he's reading. And it's like, oh, I know his name. I know what city he's in. You know, I know what kind of music he's sharing out. You know, all this stuff just from just watching. You, so, you know, the worst place for this in the whole world is any hotel near Moscone Center during during Macworld. Oh, God, yes. Because people always forget to turn that stuff off. Yeah, because right? all the... You know, all the Mac geeks are there and they've got their Macs in their hotel room at night. They're getting on the Internet with their Macs or whatever. And and you've got like 17 libraries from your floor. Yeah. But yeah. I will I will tell you inside my house behind my router, you know, my my Wi-Fi is not open. Um, you know, my stuff stays up to date. I have the firewall off in my Mac and I have the firewall off in the virus barrier X. And that way, you know, I don't have to worry about my iTunes not connecting and all that. Now, if I had a laptop, which, you know, I don't have a work laptop for Mac anymore, but I moved to somewhere that uses Windows. But I would, when I had my Mac, make sure that I turned the firewall on before I left the house just to be safe. And I guess that's my only concern is that if you regularly turn it off at home, I think a lot of people are going to forget to turn Get it, to turn it off when they lean. 
Yeah. And, you know, I've never fully explored it. Maybe if someone out there gets really you know, froggy. I just, I leave mine on. I've never had really any problems. Yeah. Well, also the, ever since like, uh, I think it was Snow Leopard, they made it more application aware. So if you're running a certain application, it lets the application through automatically, even though, you know, the firewall itself is up. And that's probably why you haven't had many issues is it knows to let iTunes through if you turn on sharing, things like that. Yeah, just because I I know myself, I know I'll forget. I haven't played with this, but I'm suspecting you could probably put like a keyboard maestro script together Mm -hmm. and just like call it Shields Up. And when you want an Apple script and an automator, you could do the similar sort of thing probably. Yeah. Then you got to remember to trigger off the script. I see. And, I and, Max, myself, and Max have had for a long time the ability to specify what location you're at, home, office, whatever, and theoretically change your network settings to match your preference. But I've never really messed with it. So I don't know how well it works. There was an app that would do some of that. I think it was called Marco Polo. I don't know if it's been updated regularly. Yep. It would, that would do some triggering based on your location. And specifically, I think it would do it based on what uh, Wi Fi network you were connected to. All right. And I think we had another question about hotspot shield and, you know, surfing publicly on the Wi-Fi. I think we've pretty much covered that with the, the VPN or, you know, and using hotspot shield is, was actually one example of that. Right. Uh, here's another interesting uh, email we got, and I won't disclose the writer. It's uh, felt bad. Uh, my son is a college age PC user who has moved back home recently after graduation And I received a DMCA notice from our cable provider notifying us of illegal file sharing from our IP address. My son admitted to downloading the illegal files and movies off file sharing sites, but promised to stop. I would like to be more proactive. We have multiple Macs, iPads, iPhones, and a lone PC in our house uh, connected to our cable internet connection through an airport extreme. Is there any way to block this type of activity at the network level? Well, my my suggestion when I wrote back, I said, this is a simple solution. You need to put the cable bill in the son's name. Oh, that's nice. Make a pay bill. Yeah. Uh, that's that money always talks, right? Oh. No, what, what you do is you, you lock out their PC in the router because, you know, in Airport <laughs> Extreme, they have one. You can say, hey, don't let this PC get to the Internet. So you can no. shut down their Internet access, and not let them, you know, game or whatever it is they want to do. But this also goes back to our friend OpenDNS, right? Yes, the easiest, cheapest place to start. I mean, there's many ways to do it, but the easiest, cheapest ways to start is if you set up an open DNS, you know, on, you know, use the service and then set up an account, it'll block more than phishing. It'll block porn, whatever. And they have a category for peer to peer. Now, is it perfect? No filtering thing is perfect, but it's a good place to start and it'll stop a lot of it from just working, you know, most of the time. Probably enough to frustrate the kid and they're not going to say, hey, dad. I, my BitTorrent's not working. <laughs> well, sometimes people do rat themselves out. You'd be surprised. <laughs> I guess so. Uh, but that is a good place to start is to open DNS, turn on open DNS, turn on the peer-to-peer blocking. And it also goes, as sure as lawyers, you understand the idea of showing, you know, that you put forth a good faith effort towards something, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? It shows that you're taking measures to protect and stop that kind of behavior on your home. So even if something did occur, you've at least shown that you tried versus, you know, neglected it completely. One other reason to really be motivated about blocking this peer-to-peer stuff, and I don't, you think the stuff about the SSL was scary. There have been cases, and I have a friend who's a PI and forensics person who's actually actively involved in cases like this, 
where people have downloaded files from these peer-to-peer networks thinking they're one thing and they turn out to be child porn. And then because oh, law enforcement completely is, innocently, they, they mean to, they didn't they mean, mean to, to do down, it. Well, not innocently, but they mean to download a movie. And yeah, they meant to steal else. a movie as opposed to right. child porn. Right. Okay. And they might have downloaded a thousand files. Right. And they don't know what's all in them. They start to go through them and they find a couple files, realize what this is and delete it. And then they go, I don't want this file sharing, you know, frost wire or whatever on my machine. Delete it. Well, the problem is law enforcement is paired with a company called TLO uh, of Boca Raton, Florida, and they're hooking into all these peer networks. And when you run this file sharing software, by default, it automatically reshares whatever you've downloaded. So now you're guilty of distribution of child porn. And they're pressing charges against people who do this, even when all the evidence shows they deleted it and didn't mean to. They're still going after them. So don't put yourself in that situation. Do not you download stuff you shouldn't. Now, there are legitimate uses for things like BitTorrent, you know, ISO images of Linux and things like that. And when you're getting it from a trusted source, you know it is. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with the technology. But don't go into these file sharing sites, download God knows what, thinking you're getting around something and that no one's watching because they are. And it could potentially put you in a world of legal hurt. It actually scares me because I've cleaned up a few friends now because they're actually keeping all these records because it's a private company, not the government doing it. So all your constitutional protections went out the window. So they're actually keeping records as far back as eight years, I think, is how much they have. And so if you get caught for it now and then you say, I've never done something like this before, and they pull the records from six years ago and share, show that you did share out a file based on the billing records and the IP records and all this. Then they go, oh, look, uh, prior behavior. And it's bad. It's really, really scary. And, you know, if I clean up some friend's machine and I found, you know, these bear share on it or whatever, I'm like, oh, great. Now in my records with Comcast is, you know, was that sharing something out? I didn't know what was even on there, you know, and is that going to reflect on me? So just stay away from that stuff. It's not worth it. Yeah, there's nothing good that comes from that. You know, pay for your comic books and pay for your music. Yeah. And pay Those for artists want to eat, too. <laughs> yeah. And especially well, and, pay for and, your geeky books about Macs at work and iPad at work. Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> and, it, and especially in, in this particular case, it's, it's likely it's not the kid that's ultimately going to get, you know, <laughs> something slapped at him because of the, the cable bills probably in the parent's name. If, if the kid Yeah, exactly. Your it's your name on the billing records. Right. Ooh, all right. Um, mo- moving on to, to happier emails. Uh, not really. This is not a happy subject, is it? Um, let's see. Uh, just a general question. A lot of people wanted to know, how concerned do they need to be just in general about either uh, retailers or advertisers tracking their online behavior? You know, they this a couple of people wrote in and said, you know, I use Adblock, I use one password, am I safe? So, you know, George, I thought this might be an interesting conversation. Are there any particular web browsers or any particular web extensions uh that you recommend? Sure. Well again, one place to start is OpenDNS that blocks some categories like adware, things like that. That'll help block some of it. Get rid of things like Flash. I think, Katie, you've done it. I know I've done it where you've gotten rid of Flash off your Mac. And then just if you have to use, if you have to use a Flash site, you're doing it in Chrome. (laughs) Right. So get rid of Flash because Flash lets these advertisers make really persistent Flash based cookies. 
that the whole delete cookies things don't even touch. One password, as far as I know, does nothing about tracking and cookies, right? It just helps make sure that you've got the right site when you're entering your credentials. Logging out of things like Facebook will help a little bit too, because suppose that get rid of, you know, some cookies if you trust Facebook. <laughs> the plugin I use the most myself is Ghostery, which I'm sure David will put in the show notes. And it's cross-platform, cross-browser. So, you know, Firefox, Chrome, um, you know, Safari, whatever. It's, you know, it works really well at blocking some of that stuff. And I think it even helps block Flash, too. The only problem I've had with that kind of tool, whether it's AdBlock or Ghostery, it's, is especially with the Flash-based blocking in Ghostery, if you, you need to whitelist certain sites, you know, we all like, maybe maybe you're a Hulu user, maybe you're you know, a YouTube user, whatever. And I've seen it like uh, with my wife and her little notebook. I put Ghostery on there and she went to use like NBC to stream some episode of something she missed. And it may, it caused it where it wouldn't play the episode until I whitelisted and allowed them to put their little flash cookies and stuff on there. So they're actually doing things to make you whitelist them <laughs> or they won't let the content play. It's kind of annoying. Uh, so you do need to be aware you might have to troubleshoot it a little bit. If you yeah, use certain sites, you know, I kind of have mixed emotions about ad blockers in general because, you know, certainly as a sh show that's sponsored and as, you know, other, other web publishers use ads, you know, to, to, to pay for their services. So I, I, you know, I kind of have mixed emotions about using ad blockers, but I, I certainly am all in favor of increased privacy. Yeah. So yeah. you know, I tend well, to just, it's, you know, it's, check it's the not, cookie box that says only accept them from the sites I browse to, not from their advertisers, but sure. I think that's real effective. Yeah, it, it, there's ways around it. The flash cookies are one way around it. Another thing that the, the blocking ads in AdWare does, I do it in a corporate environment. I use our you know corporate web filtering to block ads and pop-ups all the time. It's a, a strategy I've used for years. The bad guys love to compromise the ad network servers. Right. I mean, like there was like a year or two ago where Congress was told not to browse Drudge Report for like a week because the ad server's Drudge Report was letting embed in their site had been compromised and congressional PCs were getting infected mm -hmm. because, it you know, you think you're going to just Drudge Report, but it's really made up of all these different websites, specifically the ads. So if you block those ads from even being downloaded and rendered, then some of these zero day exploits aren't going to hit the web browser and therefore infect your machine. So okay, George, we've been going now about an hour and a half. And if you made it this far in the podcast, you do deserve a cookie. <laughs> <laughs> We're giving but out I, cookies again. I, I, thought we, I thought what we should do is just without even explaining, because we've explained through the show, I'd like to just kind of go back and hit a couple of points. Like at home, set up open DNS. Yep. You know, at home, uh, secure your Wi-Fi with WPA2. Yes. Not WEP or WPA1. Correct. WEP uh, is completely useless. When you go out to Starbucks, uh, be very, very careful. Yes. You know, just, don't do anything don't do that involves money. And right. uh, if you can, if you're fortunate and you can get a 3G connection, then you should do that instead. Or if you have a VPN set up, then you should do that instead. Agreed. Um, um, get rid of Flash. It's really not that hard. I haven't had Flash on my computer for probably a couple of years. I mean... It's not that bad. We've talked about it before. What yeah. are the what are the other couple good points to take home? Don't run as admin and stay yeah. patched. Yeah. And then that's fair. 
And like I said, maybe use a separate browser for banking versus your regular surfing. There's some basic points. I think if you follow those, you're going to be much better off than you were. Yep. And use one password. (laughs) Thanks, George. I want to thank you for coming on the show. I know this is a lot we covered Uh, for the listeners. Thanks for hanging in there with us because we did get pretty geeky here. But I think this is all great stuff. And I think we need to get the word out about it. So I'm glad we did it. Yep. That's been fun. George, where can, where can people find more information about you and some of the work that you're doing? Because I know you've, you've got a blog that has a lot of great information about security on it, and I know you're on Twitter. So where can people find you? Yeah, pretty much anywhere with the name George Starcher, you know, so georgestarcher.com, .net. And then, of course, I spend uh, my Wednesday nights doing the call screening for Ken Ray. I do, if, you know, time allows, I will answer some questions for callers while they're waiting if I'm not too hammered. Uh, with calls. And then uh, also I helped Victor Cahiao with typical Mac user as well. All right. Well, thanks a lot, George. Uh, I suspect we'll be talking to you again sometime in the future because you are our go-to guy for these kinds of subjects. And uh, we really appreciate you coming in. As always, it's fun. Thanks. All right, David. And where can people find everything that we talked about in this, this uh, marathon episode with George? Uh, the show notes, of course, uh, they're both at the 5x5 website. That's 5x5.tv slash MPU slash 67. Or you can find it at the MacPowerUsers.com website. We're going to have thorough show notes up with all these links. If you have questions for us or if you want to uh, include your comments, you want to send feedback, you can send that to feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. That's the best email address as it will send it to both David and I. We also are on Twitter. Uh, we're at Mac Power Users, and I am at Max Barkey and Daisy. Excuse me. <laughs> I've been working all day. And Katie. Boy, that is really Freudian. I'm <laughs> I, think, I think we're getting married now. Jeez. I thought all right. Jeff. So, we have been doing this for several years. Yeah. Katie Floyd is at Katie Floyd. That's right. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash uh, Mac power users. If you're so inclined to use Facebook and, uh, we love your iTunes comments. It's, it's the end of the year and it'd be great to get a, a, over that last little hump and, and get a couple more iTunes comments in before the year closes. So you can find us on iTunes as well. Thanks. Uh, as always. Okay. Oh, now well, thanks to our sponsors uh, for supporting the show throughout the year, uh, including the Omni group, smile software, one password, Chrometa, and Byword. And uh, David, it is the end of the year. This is our last show for 2011, and it has been an absolute phenomenal year for Mac Power users. A, a, a year of big changes with the transition to five by five. We've increased production of our show a little bit here the last last little part of the year, and um, that certainly would not have been possible. Uh, without the support from from Dan and Faith and everybody else over at 5 by 5 So we just want to say thank you so much to them. Uh, and thank you and welcome to our new listeners from the 5 by 5 network. And, and truly, we thank them at the end of every show. But thank you to our sponsors, uh, and especially those sponsors who have been with us for a long time, because they they really have allowed us to to make this show happen, and especially to increase the frequency of this show. Uh, it, 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 it has just... David, you you and I know when we talk, it it has amazed me. Yeah, and Dan Benjamin in particular for bringing us into his family. uh, It means a lot to me, and uh, I'm very appreciative. Um, I hope all the listeners enjoy a happy holiday and have a great time. 
uh, when you come back in 2012, we have big plans. And uh, we've got some great shows already planned for January. And things next year are only going to get better at the Mac Power So we look forward to seeing you on the other side. Thank you.